Welcome to the Laser Therapy Institute weekly podcast, the world's first podcast about medical laser therapy for healthcare providers. Each week, we discuss the latest research, interviews with experts, and how laser therapy can enhance your practice. Now, here is the founder of LTI and your host, Dr. Jason Roundtree. Hey, welcome back to the Laser Therapy Institute podcast. My name is Dr. Jason Roundtree, and if you're not a dentist, don't go anywhere yet. We are talking about a study on dentistry and photobiomodulation or laser therapy, but there's a lot packed into this episode. If you're a laser therapy practitioner, you're gonna wanna listen to some of the findings of this very interesting paper. And if you're a dentist, uh, you'll definitely benefit from this, especially if you are thinking of adding laser therapy to your practice, or you already have a laser in practice, and you're wondering, how do I get better results and better outcomes for my patients? using my laser device. And the study we're looking at today was published in October of 2020, so a very new study in Dentistry Journal. It's a review and it's titled Photobiomodulation Dose Parameters in Dentistry, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Obviously a systematic review and meta-analysis is kind of our top level research. We're looking at multiple trials to come to a conclusion, not just one particular way of doing it, but looking at the science as a whole, and seeing what kind of conclusions we can draw. Now, in the paper, they say, the use of photobiomodulation therapy as a science and evidence-based approach offers potential clinical gain to the discerning dental professional to complement the recognized surgical benefits in dentistry offered by laser implementation. There are many reported successes in a variety of clinical oral conditions, including pain control and orthodontics, mitigation of aphthous ulceration, the management of dentinal hypersensitivity, as well as the prevention and mitigation of radio and chemotherapy related oral mucositis. Also, potential for the accelerated rate of orthodontic tooth movement, changes with burning mouth syndrome, results with xerostomia, as well as lichen planus, also reducing post-operative pain, trismus and swelling following third molar extractions, as well as in relation to conditioning tissues to achieve optimal healing and regeneration of tissues. Now, I'm not a dentist, so some of that doesn't mean a lot to me, but if you're a dentist, it does mean quite a bit to you. And now I've been involved in photobiomodulation for a long time, and I'm a certified medical laser safety officer, so I've got some level of knowledge about how we're talking about this thing, how it works, how it interfaces with dentistry. Obviously, the faster you have healing, the less frequently you can have poor outcomes, the better. With any healthcare field, you want to minimize poor outcomes, right? And lasers have become a big piece of that in the physical medicine side of things, but more and more dentists are doing laser dentistry as well. Now, laser dentistry isn't just photobiomodulation. In a lot of dentist offices, there is the use of laser for things like surgeries, but the potential is there to use photobiomodulation to help with additional problems as well, like we just gave the list on the rundown, right? And that's all pulled from this particular study, which was done by dentists in the UK and at the University of Nevada. And they say that photobiomodulation is, in essence, a non-surgical therapy associated without any significant tissue hyperthermia, as opposed to surgical laser where you're using hyperthermia to either coagulate or ablate tissues. And so since we have all these research results that are showing positive effects, these researchers wanted to kind of combine a large group of studies and see what they could find to connect spot size and dose with positive results. Now, when I say spot size, just referring to how much of 
the tissue is illuminated by the laser handpiece or the fiber. It's also referred to as an optical footprint. Essentially, how much square centimeter area is covered uh, by that laser spot size. And so they put together this review and ended up uh, narrowing it down to include 38 studies. They excluded all LED studies. They only were looking at laser because again, we're just evaluating really spot size and power to figure out where the positive results are gonna lie. So they looked at all these studies and then they ranked them, you know, based on small spot size, medium spot size, and then larger optical spot size. And what they found is that there was a correlation between smaller optical surface applications and a lower level of reported clinical success in both superficial and deeper targets. They said that our findings show a clear association between the application of a larger surface optical spot size and an optimal clinical outcome for deeper targets. So basically, better results with a large spot size for at least those deeper targets. They did find very good results with small spot sizes on the more superficial issues like oral mucositis. And they say that our analysis suggests that a limited area of exposure and the delivery of a low overall sum of energy can result in a compromised clinical outcome particularly in deeper tissue targets, all right? Just kind of restating that yes, the deeper the target is and the smaller the spot size is, the less successful these studies were. Why is that? Well, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm gonna read you a paragraph out of this study because I don't think there's really a better way to put it. They say the typical wavelengths used in photobiomodulation fall within the red to near infrared spectrum and between 650 to 1200 nanometers. Due to the relatively poor absorption of these wavelengths in biological tissues, there can be significant optical transport within the tissues, meaning that you can get the light to travel pretty deep into the tissues. They go on to say this is, however, subject to a high degree of photon scattering due to the coincidence of these wavelengths with the size of tissue components at a subcellular level. As a result, there can be a significant degree of forward, back, and to a lesser degree, lateral scatter, which attenuates the penetration to depth. However, it's anticipated that at a depth of one centimeter, there will remain around five to 10% of the surface near-infrared photons arriving at a possible target at this level. And again, one centimeter deep. In view of the energy loss as described, it's recommended that there should be an increase in the surface applied dose to around 10 times for subsurface targets. For example, to deliver a dose to a target which is one centimeter in depth, if you want to deliver five joules per centimeter squared, a surface application of 50 joules per centimeter squared is suggested. Now, later in the paper, they go back and say, hey, look, the recommended dose guideline is two to 10 joules per centimeter squared for optimal cellular productivity, healing. But they're saying, you know, in a deeper target, you're going to want to increase your dosage maybe to 50 joules per centimeter squared. You're going up 10 times in dosage to make sure you can deliver a therapeutic dose to those deeper tissues. They go on to say that instead of describing dose influence of joules per centimeter squared, that because the challenge is to really deliver that photonic input to depth and volume, we should be talking in joules per centimeter cubed. So we need to stop thinking about just the surface level we're treating, for, or at least deep targets, and start talking about the volume of tissue that needs to be treated. 
So they say that it is our contention that based on positive outcomes identified here, the use of a larger surface optical footprint, as opposed to a small optical spot size, along with a corresponding increase in the overall level of delivered energy may offer the prospect of increased clinical success. So let's talk about the energy delivery here, the power levels that need to be used with larger spot sizes. But actually, before we get to the power levels to be used, let's talk real briefly about the lasers that are often used in dentistry. You guys are a lot of times using surgical lasers at a lower intensity level to have a photobiomodulation effect, but a lot of times you don't have the hand pieces or the equipment doesn't come with a hand piece for photobiomodulation. So you're able to use the light distribution right off the fiber itself because pull the handpiece off, the light that distributes from the fiber does spread out, does diffuse, and you can create a, you know, a larger spot size. The problem with that is you end up with a Gaussian beam. In the paper, they say the emitted beam profile from a diode laser fiber optic cable is of a Gaussian distribution with an energy peak in the mid-third of the beam which is typically two to four times that of the periphery. Basically, think about a flashlight, shining a flashlight on the wall. The center of that beam is really bright, and then the outside gets more and more dim, right? That's what a Gaussian distribution is. So if you're doing that, if you're just using the fiber to emit a lower level of energy, realize you can't go too high in power or you're going to get into hyperthermia of the tissues, at least in the center of that spot size. So when you're using a larger optical spot and you're increasing the power to maintain that energy fluence of that larger spot size, you either need to use a scanning type technique or reduce your power overall and really monitor temperatures, at least according to this paper. The other thing that you could do is use an optically corrected large spot size handpiece which converts the top hat beam profile to a flat top. So from that Gaussian distribution where you've got a bright spot in the middle to a top hat distribution where the light is evenly distributed across that spot size. Then the paper they say that to date, these have largely been applied in physiotherapy as well as in novel applications in respect of neurology for things like improved cognitive performance. A lot of the studies that we've seen good success with on the physiotherapy and the chiropractic side of things uses a large spot size class four high intensity laser. Now, if you're thinking, well, I can just take my small spot size and do multiple spots to cover a larger area or you know, do that scanning technique. I mean, you can, but in this paper, they say that a multiple point technique will only deliver energy to a small volume of tissue. And furthermore, due to attenuation, the area treated at depth is likely to be small. So you don't really wanna do multiple small points. You want to be able to cover a large area with that large spot size. And keeping in mind that you need to be treating in joules per centimeter cubed, you're going to have to ramp up your power. It's easiest to do the increased power with a larger spot size because you can deliver the treatment more quickly as well as get better depth of penetration of the light. And in support of that, they give us a graphic in this paper, which I've got the link to this paper in the show notes. You ought to download it and check it out. There's some great info here. But they give us a graphic to demonstrate the difference in depth penetration of small spot size versus large spot size. There's significantly higher and better energy penetration on the large spot size compared to that small spot size. So the general guidance there is to use that large optical footprint 
with an overall higher energy delivery, but to still maintain that level that's consistent with the previous studies that have been done to employ that same radiant exposure, but you're just using a larger spot size. Most of your dental lasers will do the calculations for you where depending on spot size, you can adjust the overall irradiance. So you should be able to maintain that same irradiance level even though your spot size is larger, meaning you're going to be putting out more power, but because the spot size is larger, you're not looking at overstimulating or superheating those tissues. At the end of the paper and the conclusion, they say, it is our view that a mature appreciation of oral anatomy and pathology plus a well-developed understanding of laser and light transmission into biological tissues is an essential requirement to a design for clinical success. And obviously, if you're doing laser therapy, if you're delivering a photobiomodulation effect using your laser in your office, you want clinical success. That's a given, right? What can we draw from this particular paper? Essentially, you need to be using a top hat beam handpiece, not just the fiber laser. You can get away with using the fiber on its own, but you're going to have a much better overall result if you can get a handpiece that will give you that top hat beam distribution. Get a hold of your laser manufacturer. They will probably have an answer for you on that. The next thing is that generally a larger spot size is going to do better, especially if we're talking about deep targets. So if you have the option to do very small spot size or larger spot size, you're pretty much always going to want to go ahead and use that larger spot size. And the next takeaway is you need to understand how your device displays and measures power and irradiance. Is it calculating out the irradiance correctly for your spot size? Because yes, if you go from a small spot size to a larger spot size, the power measured in watts needs to be higher, but your irradiance, the actual intensity of the beam, should be about the same as what you use for your small spot size treatments. If you're not totally clear on this, I, I know there's a lot of terms I've thrown in here, but if you want to know more, we've got several other episodes on the mechanisms of light therapy. Scroll through the podcast, check those out. They'll get you more on the technical terms. While you're doing that, leave us a rating or a review. I'd really appreciate it if you let us know what you think about the podcast. And that helps other professionals find out about this resource also. The other thing is, if you're still kind of wrapped around the axle on this, shoot me an email info at lasertherapyinstitute.org. I've trained quite a few dentists already over the last few years. I'd be happy to work with you, whether you're in the dental field or you're another healthcare practitioner. This is the thing we do. We help practitioners understand and implement laser therapy in practice so that the results can be excellent. We also offer a ton of free resources. Those are linked in the show notes and you can also find them on the resources tab on our website, lasertherapyinstitute.org. Hope this was useful to you. If you have additional questions, don't hesitate to reach out, but I'll see you next week. Subscribe now to keep learning about the growing field of laser therapy. Check out our patient-focused podcast, Healing at the Speed of Light, a great resource for your patients. For massive practice growth and improved patient outcomes, become a certified Laser Therapy Institute clinic. Learn how at lasertherapyinstitute.org.